who holds the power in our world? Who held the power in the Yaakov-Esav relationship? Because we do find that Yaakov calls Esav at certain points, my master, and I am your servant. We see that before there's a Jewish king, there are kings from Esav's descendants, and yet the broche is supposed to be, that Esav is supposed to be subjected to Yaakov. So what's really going on? We're going to start our story with Echad HaMelochim, one of the kings who's recorded as having ruled in Edom before the Jews had a king. Hayo was a fellow called Yoivav ben Zerach mi That's his name. Rashi explains what's the Torah telling us. Botsra meore Moyavi. Botsra is a city that belonged to the territory of Moyav. And he proves it from a Pasuk in Yermiyosh. And the Pasuk continues to speak about Moyav. Because that city produced a king who became a king over Edom. Therefore, says Rashi, in the future, when Edom is punished by Debishta, they'll be punished as well. As the Pasuk says, that there'll be a massacre of Hashem's doing in a place called Botsra. Obvious question. How is it relevant to know that Botsra actually belongs to the territory of Moyav? to understand the simple understanding of the Pasuk, which is what Rashi wants to teach us. So yes, Mephorashim, some suggest Rashi, that Rashi is actually trying to explain that the obvious question is, why does the Torah have to tell me where this fellow Yovah ben Zerach comes from? That he comes me Botsra. And the Mephorashim say, that the Torah wants us to know that that place Botsra will be incorporated in whatever consequences Edom faces. Why? Rashi will explain. Because they provided a king to Edom. That's how the Mephoshim explain it. The Rebbe is going to say there are two glaring questions on that explanation. It's not a clear or sufficient explanation. Because, Kalpi said, there's two questions. You're trying to explain to me what this has to do with the Pshat. Your explanation also has the same question. What does it have to do with the Pshat? Here, the Pshat is telling us who the kings of Edom were before there was a Jewish king. Why is it relevant to the Pshat to know that in the future there'd be some kind of uh, punishment of Edom? Why is it relevant here? The context of the parasha is not speaking about the future, certainly not the time of Moshiach, and certainly not the time of whatever consequences Edom will face. So why would it be relevant? But besides that, base, the key question here is, All of the kings listed with one exception, the Pasuk tells us where they came from. In none of the other situations does Rashi tell us why we need to know where this king came from. So why now? Besides that, when it comes to the final king on the list, the Torah goes into tremendous detail. and adds, Not only that his city of origin was a place called Po, and that got other information. His wife's name was Meitovel. In more detail, Bas Matre, Bas Mezahov, who she was the daughter of, who she was the granddaughter of. Rashi doesn't explain why the Torah loads on so much detail for a particular king. All he does is he interprets what the meaning of the words Mezahov is. 
So why here would he suddenly feel compelled to explain why we need to know where this king came from? We move on, which clearly indicates that the simple explanation will not raise any question why his city is mentioned, because that is normal in the context of a normal pasuk. So we're back to square one. What is it that compels Rashi to explain why this king came from Botsra? Now, in order to understand this, before we can answer this question, we need to look at the greater context of the relationship between Yaakov and Esav as individuals and Edom and Yisrael as nations. So let's analyze the Pasuk. Let's go back to the Pasuk that introduced how there would be these two great nations that would emerge, the nation of Edom and the nation of Israel. And that happens when Rivka is pregnant. She's not sure what's going on inside. So she goes to the Navi and she's told, There are two nations within you. And two superpowers that will diverge from when they leave the womb. Those two superpowers will struggle always for superiority. And eventually, or maybe it's not eventually, and the more powerful will serve the younger one. Now Rashi comments on the components of this Pasuk, and it's intriguing what he says. In that Pasuk, when the Pasuk speaks about these two superpowers that will conflict or will struggle, Piresh Rashi, Rashi explains, what does it mean they will struggle? Loi yishvu bigedula. They will never share the same status of greatness. And therefore, when one rises, naturally the other will fall. That's with regards to loim pasuk. But the next part of the pasuk that says, or the end of the pasuk that says that the greater will serve the younger, Rashi doesn't explain anything about what that means. Veine move on. That's strange. Think about it logically. If the seesaw effect of these two nations is that as one rise, the other rises, the other one declines, how does that fit with the conclusion of the Pasuk, which is generic, that the greater will always serve the younger. The implication of that Pasuk is that it is constant. And it's not something which vacillates up and down depending on who's on the rise and who's on the decline. And in fact, the Medrash tries to explain it by saying, If the younger is deserves it, then the older will serve him. And if he doesn't deserve it, it's going to switch roles and he'll be serving the older. Rashi doesn't quote that Medrash. So Rashi is making a distinction clearly between the concept of Kom and Neufel versus the concept of who serves who. We'll analyze what that means. In order to analyze that, let's look at the other part of the Pasuk because there, when Rivka is told that there are two Goyim in her womb, Pirish Rashi, Rashi says it is spelt Goyim, or it's pronounced Goyim, but Geyim Kasif. It's actually written Geyim, which means great individuals. Says Rashi, who are the great individuals? Elo Antoninus, Verebi Vichole. It's Marcus Aurelius, emperor of the Romans, and Rebbe, who lived at the same time of him, Lahavdil, the leader of the Jewish people. And they had a tremendous relationship. So, in other words, Rashi says Goyim over here refers to great individuals, whereas when he uses the word in the Pasuk Rashi says 
Ein Leum and a Malchus. The word Leum must refer to an entire kingdom. Aha. So the Pasuk is now speaking about the relationship between individuals and the relationship between nations. Vahainu. It's now clear from Rashi that the Torah is not repeating the same theme in two different ways of saying it. For poetic license or whatever. Instead, the Torah is actually describing two separate scenarios. When it speaks about the two so-called nations or superpowers or whatever you want to, word you want to use. That's talking about Yaakov, the person, versus Esau, the person. And the individuals amongst their descendants, like Antoninus and Rebbe. Whereas, when it speaks about the two nations, that's That's two kingdoms, and how they go head to head with each other. Which helps us to understand. These two factors that are listed in the Pasuk. On the one hand. On the other. Which we thought might be contradictory. Are directly related to the first part of the Pasuk. The superpower conflict. That's. When we say that they're going to conflict, that means that there's a nation of Yaakov or Yisrael and a nation of Edom that will always be in a seesaw effect. In their interactions, sometimes one has the upper hand, sometimes the other has the upper hand. But when the pastor concludes definitively that the greater will serve the younger, that's Medabrodis Yaakov Esav. That's talking about the people, Yaakov Esav, etc. and their descendants, Betur Ishim Protim, in their personal capacity. In their personal capacity, the Yaakov representatives as individuals will always have the upper hand. This is echoed in Yitzchak Avinu's Brocha to Yaakov, where he says, You will be the master over your brother. Yitzchak didn't say, if you behave, or in these circumstances, when he's not rising. To imply that that greatness that Yaakov will have over Esau is only at certain unique times. In fact, it was such a powerful brocha that for that reason, Yitzchak has to turn to Esau when Esau complains, what about me? Says Yitzchak, What's the value in me giving you any bracha? If you acquire any wealth, it will all belong to Yaakov. Why? Because you're the slave to Yaakov. Whatever a slave acquires is automatically the property of the owner. So that reinforces the concept that Yaakov as an individual, and likewise the individuals of Yaakov's descendants, consistently, immutably have power and, and greatness over Esau and his descendants. All he does say, Yaakov, Yitzchak says to Esau, when Yaakov's descendants go off the derech, when they transgress Torah, then Esau, you'll be free of the subjugation of Yaakov. It doesn't say you'll subject them. You'll be free of their subjugation. Vahainu meaning, that even at the time that the Yidin don't behave as they should, 
That doesn't mean that now Esav gets their brachas instead of them. Because even under the worst circumstances of Jewish behavior, Yaakov still rules over Esav. Esav is still his servant. It's just that the servant won't actually carry the responsibility and yoke of the servant under those circumstances, but he will not become the master. So in, as nations go, yes, the nation of Edo might at times overwhelm the nation of Yisrael. But as individuals, there is no individual in Esau's family who could ever be someone who subjects anybody from Yaakov's family. Now, if that's true, that raises a huge question in our parasha, which is what Rashi needs to address. It's really difficult to understand our passage. These are Esau's kings, Edom's kings, who ruled who ruled before there was a Jewish king. That surely is illustrating to us. So surely that's telling us when the one nation rises, Edom's kings rise, there's no Jewish kings. And then when there's a Jewish king, there's no Edom kings. So the, the, the uh, order of events would be first there were Edom kings. And as soon as a Jewish king arrived, that was the end of Edom kings, which works perfectly. But seeing as there's a consistent status of Esau being the Evid to Avraham, uh, to, to Yaakov. And Yitzchak's consistent brocha to Yaakov that you will always be the overpowering ruler over your brother. And that is something consistent, albeit, yes, for individuals within the nation. And as we've illustrated, even at the time when the Jews are not behaving as they should. How does Edom have kings at all? How do they have individuals who become rulers? They're avodim. They shouldn't be rulers. But also often, how is it possible they have kings in the same way as we have kings? Without any distinction, they would say, you see, they're lesser kings because that nation is a nation of individuals who are avodim to Yaakov. As we've already mentioned, even when the Jews don't behave as they should, all it means is less onus on Esau to serve them. That means that at those times, Esau is not under our jurisdiction. But there is no indication anywhere that Esau has the power or the brocha to become a, a ruler, a king, a gvir. So how did it happen? That's the question Rashi is grappling with. The answer is, That's what Rashi is showing us. Look, the parasha addresses this concern. That's why the Torahs tell us that king of Edom, look where he came from. He didn't come from Edom. Not one of those kings is a genetic Edomite. Says the Torah, 
that's exactly what we're showing you over here clearly. The individuals who led the nation, the nation of Edom could rise. But there's no individual within Edom who could be that person who causes it to rise. Where did those individuals come from? From other countries and other nations. That's what the Torah is telling us. Says Rashi, with one big exception, surely, if you know the story, Yoivav ben Zerach mi Botsra sounds like an Edomite. So once we acknowledge that the Torah wants us to know that there is no such thing as a king from Edom, a king must come from another nation and then be accepted by Edom as their leader, what about this guy? There are two reasons to believe that this fellow Yoivav actually came from Edom. Number one, he's called Yoivav, the son of Zerach. You know who Zerach is? He's mentioned in the Alufim, in all the leaders of Esav. He's mentioned as one of their leaders. Number two, there are multiple places in Tanakh where Botra is identified as part of the Edom kingdom. Making it sound like Batra is actually a city within Edom. So, here's a man whose name of his father sounds like one of Esau's family, and his place where he comes from sounds like a place in Malchus Edom. How do you now explain that, no, Edom doesn't produce kings? Well, what about him? Rashi has to address that. To tell us, or he that Batra is not geographical Edom, it is geographical Mo- Moyav. And he brings a clear proof. The Pasuk that he quotes from Yirmiyahu, Go look up the Pasuk and you'll see the entire context is speaking about cities within the land of Edom. The Pasuk actually summarizes it by telling us and all the other cities of the land of Moab. And therefore, that would also prove that the Zerach who's mentioned over here as the father of this king Yovav is not the same Zerach mentioned in the Alufei Edom. He's not a descendant of Esav. He comes from Moab geographically and genealogically. I'll say, so what about all those places in Tanakh where Batra is so clearly associated with Edom? Rashi says, I'll explain to you. Because they provided a king to Edom, they are in the catchment area of Edom when Moshiach comes, and they will therefore have to pay the price. Therefore, in all of those places in Tanakh where it speaks about the retribution against Edom, Batra is mentioned over there. Because Batra is part of the fallout that's going to happen at that time to Edom. Aha, so Rashi is not explaining this because we need to know where this guy came from. It's because his name and place might have misled us from the Pshat. So with that in mind, that Rashi's intention by telling us that because Moyav produced this king, therefore it is Batra produced this king, therefore Batra is going to be 
uh, punished together with Adam. It's not just to make some kind of a generic link between the two places. Rashi wants us to know why it makes sense that Moya of Sobotra is mentioned together with Edom, even though it's not part of the Edom kingdom. Rashi's explanation is because in the future when Moshiach comes, they will be included in the retribution against Edom. So the fact that Rashi taught us that, will actually help us get clarity on another detail within Rashi's explanation. The, the, what, what did Rashi bring to prove to us that Botser belongs to Moab? So you've got to pay attention. It's a very interesting thing that the Rebbe picks up over here, a detail that the Rebbe picks up, which at face value doesn't seem to make sense. The, the, the amazing difference of where you place in, etc. So Rashi says, How do I know Botser belongs to Moab? Because the Pasuk says, Valkyrio is Val Botser, Bohoisich, Vergoimer. says, Because of the Pasuk, and he says, etc. But the Pasuk that is supposed to tell us that there will be retribution against Botser when Mashiach comes, there Rashi only quotes from the Pasuk, there'll be a massacre of Hashem against Botser, without an etc. Surely, logic would have said the etc. should have been swapped. Look why. Remember, the first thing Rashi wants to prove to us is that Botsra is one of the cities of Moab. So for that, all I need for that is an association between Botsra and another city that I know belongs to Moab. That's all I need. Just as I would know that Kyrios belongs to the land of Moab. I can now also work out that Batsra, Meyare Moyavi also is a city of Moyav. What the Pasuk then continues, Valkol, Ore, Eretz, Moyav, all the other cities of Moyav, Jerom has Rashi Beisophus Vegoimer, which Rashi alludes to with his etc., Hurak Hoisophus Beraya, that's not the proof, that just consolidates the proof we already have. So what I need the etc. for? Why draw my attention to that part of the Pasuk? I already have the information I know. Kyrios is from Moyav, Batsra is from Moyav, good enough. But when Rashi has to bring a Pasuk to prove to us that Batra will also be punished at the time that Ebrishto brings retribution against Edom, surely just telling us that there will be a massacre in Batra doesn't tell us that it's together with Edom. Because Edom is not mentioned in those words. Surely you need the next part of the Pasuk that tells us that there'll be a massive massacre in Edom. And then I say, oh, there's a massacre in Edom, there's a massacre in Botsra. Let's go. Put it together. And there, where we need the etc., surely, to draw our attention to the end of the Pasuk, Rashi does not put the etc. Why not? Shlomo Habir was a beautiful explanation. Let's start with the second Pasuk first. There will be a massacre in Batsar and there will be a butchering in Edom. Actually, when I look at that Pasuk in context, it might undermine Rashi's interpretation. What's Rashi's interpretation? He first wanted to tell us that Batsar belongs to Moyav. 
And the connection here to our story is that Batra will in the future have an association with Edom. See, if that's the point, that Batra is the so-called collateral damage of Edom, then this Pasuk doesn't tell that story. Because it doesn't make sense that you first mention the secondary fallout, the collateral damage, Zevech Lashem Batra, or La'achar Mikain, and only after that, if you add, the key, why Batra is being affected, which is, that there'll be this butchering in Edom. So Rashi doesn't want to draw our attention to that part of the Pasuk because we may misinterpret it to mean, hey, actually, doesn't sound like Batra is just dragged along with Edom. It sounds like Batra is part and parcel of Edom. Even though you might have been able to explain with a bit of a push, which we probably would have to explain from Rashi's perspective, that it's an unusual vav. Most of the time, the letter vav is a conjunction. And here it's, that is not, oh, besides the attack in Batra, there'll be a greater attack in Edom. It's the more uncommon vav of separation, which happens sometimes in Torah. Things are distinguished with a letter vav. But that's already a whole elaborate explanation. The pshat is that this pasuk does not really fit with Rashi's explanation. Therefore, Rashi did not want to draw our attention to that part of the pasuk and deliberately left out the etc. Okay, now that we've established that there are two methods that run, there's the nation rising and other nation falling that happens between Edom and Yisrael. And then there is the reality that no individual from Edom can ever hold sway over the Jewish people because it's always verav yavoyt so'ir. We have a big problem then going back to the beginning of the parasha. Surely Yaakov knew all of this and surely he heard the bracha that he got from Yitzchak. Why does he give Esau so much respect? Once Rashi has told us that it is always the case that the Esavs of the world serve the Yaakovs of the world, we should have a problem based on the beginning of the parasha. Why? Because the beginning of the parasha tells us Yaakov sent a delegation to Esav he told his representatives, this is what you should say, to my master, Esav. This is a message from your servant, Yaakov. To address my master, to find favor in your eyes. Not only did he say it with words, the parasha continues to show us, Yaakov sends a very elaborate tribute to Esav. And not only that, he bowed to him seven times. And many times in their discussion, he referred verbally to Esav as his master. himself as the servant. All of that behavior is the exact opposite of the message that the Esavs of the world must always be subservient to the Yaakovs of the world. Okay, you could argue that at a pshat level, which is Rashi's interpretation of the Torah, maybe it's not such a big question over here. 
Because according to Pshat, you could say, look, I could work this out with quite a clear, logical line of thinking. If Yaakov had the concern that maybe he sullied himself with sin and therefore he's Yara Yaakov, that if he did an Avera, it might have cancelled a direct promise from Hashem to him. said, I'm going to do good for you. If that was something that concerned Yaakov, then how much more so you can understand how he might have doubted the absolute certainty of a prophecy that the ace of individuals would serve the Yaakov individual, individuals which he didn't hear personally was something his mother told him she, she heard from shame. <coughs> okay, so according to Pshat we could settle it. But it's not going to give us full satisfaction. Seeing as the prophecy and promise that Yitzchok Avinu made to Yaakov, you will be master over your brother. Without any prerequisites. Afterwards, Yitzchok tells Esau that if your brother's descendants go off the, 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 the uh, reservation, all it will allow you is less subjugation to Yaakov, not control over Yaakov. So we're back to the big question. How could Yaakov behave in a way that is the exact opposite to and total contradiction of his father's un? Uh, 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 un uh, unlimited bracha to him. His father tells him, You'll be the master of your brother. What does he say? My brother, Adoini, myself, Avdecha. How does that work? And now there's an intriguing medrash that says, That Yaakov suffered later for having done this. For having called Ace of his master. But we know from Hasidus very well, every one of the Avos was a complete vehicle and conduit for godliness throughout their lives at every single moment. Move on, you have to appreciate. There's no scope for anything inappropriate in their lives. And they certainly don't sin. Yes, they might refer to certain behaviors in context of themselves as sins. It's not the literal translation of a sin rebellion against Hashem. You can actually see it in this story. Even if you go with the Medrash, it says, Yaakov suffered for having given this kind of credit and respect to Esav. Yet in practice, the Gemara quotes exactly the story of Yaakov and Esav to teach us a practical way to live. That you can actually give some kind of credibility or credit to bad people in our world because it keeps the peace, so to speak. So what's going on up here? There's a massive question. Yaakov knows the truth. He's a mekava for godliness. The truth is, I'm the master. Esau is the servant. Why is he calling it the other way around? 
It's a profound explanation of Chassidus. Mavur b'Chassidus. Asher b'Shor Shoy Esav Nalemiyakov. If you go to the spiritual point of origin of both Yaakov and Esav, Esav's higher. That's why he was born first. Through Yaakov's interactions with Esav and his transformation and elevation of Esav, Yaakov actually benefits. Yaakov is illuminated with a godly energy that is beyond what he is naturally capable of accessing. Pesa Esav is a is, is a complete chaos and, and a failure on earth, but where his neshama comes from is even greater and higher than when Yaakov's neshama comes from. Toyu That's why it says Yaakov sent the Melochim ahead of himself towards Esav, beyond himself. And that's why he called Esav his master. And he said about himself, I'm the servant. They will also explain the gift that he sent. Chassidus, you can see it in the Torah on this week's parasha, Chassidus explains where, who is the Esau that Yaakov is speaking to when he says, Adoni, not the human Esau is standing with these 400 mercenaries. He's talking to the Shorish of Esau's Neshama, which is such a lofty dimension. Taka, you're Adoni, you're beyond me, you're going to service me, you're going to empower me, you're going to lift me. That's in Chassidus. But if you go back to the Midrash, which is not so esoteric, which is kind of critical of Yaakov for having degraded himself in front of Esau, and then as a result of that, he actually was punished. So we're going to have to say that even that explanation, that Yaakov actually engaged with and gave tribute to a human rogue Esau, must also have an explanation within Hasidus that is actually a very powerful, meaningful explanation. Here's the explanation. When it comes to overcoming and elevating the negative in the world, generally speaking, there are two approaches. One way is, you completely overwhelm the subject with so much holiness and light that it just naturally loses its own identity and elevates. Meaning, the one who engages to refine the world, brings into the one being engaged and refined, an intense holy light. And because the light is so intense, it blasts away the darkness, blasts away the obstructions, and allows whatever embedded holiness is in there, the sparks of holiness, to be elevated. One approach. Even a base. Different approach. Through engaging and enmeshing ourselves within that world. Meaning, the one trying to refine the world doesn't just shine this intense light, but actually goes into that world, engages the world in hand-to-hand interaction. To the extent that the mevarer, the one who's going to make the difference and elevate the world, 
actually puts on the clothing of the misbearer, speaks the language of the place, engages in you follow the, the cultural norms of the place. And then by that engagement, totally pivots and transforms that lowly world. Now each has an advantage over the other. There's an advantage to each. If I'm looking from the perspective of the Mivar, the one who's going to make the difference, the Yaakov in the story. The first approach is far more suited to the Mivar. I don't have to lower myself, degrade myself, expose myself. Because the way that I'm going to engage the world is, I stand far away and I send my continental ballistic missiles and they blast away all the clippers and then the Kedusha comes out. And I don't get harmed and I don't get distracted. Whereas if I have to take the second approach, we know what happens. You roll in the mud, you get dirty. The one who wants to make the difference, the Yaakov in the story, knows that he's going to be demoted from his spiritual experience. Maybe we'll even come out having lost something, like an Oynesh. So from the perspective of the Mivorer, the one who's going to make the difference, remote control, intense light, that's the way to do it. But if I'm looking from the perspective of the recipient, the one who's going to change, the Aesop in the story, it's exact opposite. But even Aleph, the first approach, seeing as all the change that happens is from a bombardment of huge amounts of intense spiritual radiation, nothing really shifts in a meaningful personal way on the recipient's end, just because you're blinded with light doesn't mean you change in a personal way. So then the entire experience is you're just kind of pushing me aside to achieve your objective. I don't really count as a Whereas If you take the second approach, where the Mavara comes down into the world, learns about the people, speaks the language, engages with them, Debates with them, but becomes enmeshed in their reality. And enmeshed is a, you've got to be careful of that word, not in a detrimental way, not to accept any of the reality as real. Uh, but dealing with the person or the entity as it is in its reality, that makes the most meaningful change to the target. Not that he'll be pushed out of the way so that holiness can rise. But his whole being, will stop being an obstruction and a barrier or concealment of Kedusha. So if we had to summarize what is the ultimate purpose of Torah Mitzvahs, as the expression goes, the Torah was given to bring peace into our world, not peace in the activist sense. The real peace in its truest sense is that those who were previously opponents become our partners. They make peace with us. That's how it is with people. The same applies to our impact on the world. The natural state of the world is to abstract and conceal godliness. Our goal is to turn the world into a place of peace. 
that that which previously blocked godly waves, should become a generator of godly waves. And you're going to see this in the practice of Torah. Torah went from being this supreme, divine, infinite wisdom and came down into discussing what happens if somebody breaks your window. And got engaged in the things that are determined by the tree of both positive and negative. That allows us to enter in the world, manifest in the world, engage the world and turn it from the inside out. That's how it is with Torah. Can even have such a descent into this world, like the Nabi Yeshaya says, I've dirtied my clothing. Play with the words, and you see in that word, in order to redeem the world, to liberate the world, to refine those things that are obstacles to Kedusha. Like the Pasuk says, who is this that comes with the dirty clothes from Botsra? So you want to pull out of Edom, you want to pull out of Botsra, you've got to be willing to get dirty clothes over there. So to speak. You read this, which means that the Shechina itself enters the domain and reality of the Klippus. So Torah comes down into the world, Shechina comes down into the world, and the same must apply to Tzadikim, who are like their creator, our example being Yaakov Avinu. There are times where Tzadikim step down from the elevated spiritual place, and they completely engage within the reality and experience and mindset of the target. And sometimes they do such an effective job of entering the space that needs to be converted, elevated, that they actually have to themselves do some repair work afterwards, like Yaakov Avinu is Nenosh. But they'll do it because that's what Abishta wants, that we should bring the Shalom, the concept of godliness and so-called peace, into the physical world, mitzad the physical world, not to superimpose it, but to transform the world around. That's why Yaakov bows before Esau and calls him a master. Not only in the abstract spiritual sense that he's looking to the Shoresh of Esau and saying, I defer. He's talking to the human Esau with all of his hang-ups. Even though the template is supposed to be Esav should be serving Yaakov. Because the ultimate way to transform Esav is It's when Esav of his own accord comes to realize and acknowledge that he should be serving Yaakov. You want to get there? You want Esau to recognize and embrace the concept of serving Yaakov. You're not going to get there just by superimposing this great spiritual light that's going to dazzle him. It means Yaakov and his descendants getting into Esau's world, speaking their language. Which means that the Mevorah, the Yaakov, the Jewish person, is not where they need to be. And might even lose out certain spiritual opportunities. Yaakov role plays that for us 
by degrading himself in front of Esau. Because that's Esau's world. Esau's world, I have to be dominant. Okay, let's talk your language. And as a result of Yaakov's approach, look how effective it was. Esau says to him, you get what you deserve. In other words, the brachas were yours. Yeah, he acknowledges the brachas belong to you. What are the brochas? Well, one of them is that Yaakov is going to be master over Esau. And here Esau acknowledges it, not because anybody pummeled him into submission, and not because anybody dazzled him with spirituality, because Yaakov worked with him, got him on board. And that will bring us that will bring us to the complete transformation and elevation of Esau, and we'll see it clearly. In the time of Moshiach Hashem, which Yaakov alluded to over here, he says, I'll catch up with you at Harasayu, which means, and Esau will be so-called judged, and Abishur will become king over the whole world in the time of Moshiach, which happened, take care of Umiyad Mamash.